Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter Podcast, I'll be interviewing Rich Rogers. Rich is a software and technology testing and quality consultant based in Sydney, and the author of Changing Times, Quality for Humans in a Digital Age, which he recently published on LeanPub. His book considers the relationship between people and technology, um, and not exactly in the genre typical of books that address this topic. Uh, the genre publishers refer to as prescriptive nonfiction that makes up the majority of technical books published on LeanPub. Rather, the book is structured around, uh, well, it does have a lot of prescriptive nonfiction and excellent information in it and advice. Um, the book is structured around the fictional story of a journalist named Kim and her relationship with the technology that has an impact on her life. In this interview, we're going to talk about Rich's professional interests, his book, and at the end, we'll talk about his experience a little bit as a self-published writer and author. So thank you, Rich, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Um, as I think you know, um, I usually like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, I gathered from the preface to your book that your interest in software and technology uh, generally goes back to your early childhood. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you first got interested in, in computers and technology. Yeah, sure. I mean, as I mentioned in the book, um, as a child growing up um, in the UK in the 1980s, I became um, interested in technology really from the point of view of how it can help people. Um, and I mentioned examples um, like, like calculators and, and VCRs and, and home computers. Um, they were the kind of things that really sort of caught my interest. Um, and I guess what maybe makes me slightly different to some in the field is that my interest was in, in, in how, those, um, how those things could help people rather than how they worked. Um, I wasn't someone who kind of um, took calculators apart to see, you know, the internal workings. Um, I was more interested in, in the ways I could help people. Um, and, and I guess that's kind of followed through in my career. Um, I've, you know, I've worked in software development for over 20 years, um, most of that time as, as a tester um, or involved in testing to some extent. Um, but I've, I've really been kind of interested in the, in the way technology helps people. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's a really important thing for, for testers to, to keep in mind. Um, but it's really something that's kind of played out through my career. And um, I guess as, as I wrote the book, I really wanted to focus on that aspect of technology, how it could help people. Um, and also, you know, how, how people were involved in creating technology and, and what it meant to the people involved in um, software development and, and the broader sort of technology world. And um, did you study computer science in university? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I did some, um, some computer science at school. Um, and, you know, I, I also um, had a home computer. Um, and we did some, did some programming and coding at home. Um, very, very basic coding. Um, I actually had a, an Acorn Electron, which was a, a bit of an obscure computer. Um, you know, most kids had um, Spectrums or Commodore 64s. We had an Acorn Electron, which used um, BBC Basic. Um, and we, we, we learned, myself and my brother learned how to write some simple code on there. Um, mostly we just played games, but we did do some coding. Um, and then through through school uh, computer science, I you know I, I learned a bit more, um, and then took that off on into into university. But the the course I actually did at university was uh, was called a business and technology course. So it wasn't purely um, a course to learn about computer science. It was very focused on the applications of technology and the applications of computers in the business world. Um, so again, it had that kind of balance between the technical side and the real world application. 
Uh, I actually have a question, specific question about uh, business and technology that I'm going to ask you uh, in, <laughs> in a couple minutes. But I wanted to, before jumping ahead, I wanted to ask how you got into testing. Yeah, I, I mean, I was um, I was very fortunate when I left uh, university in that I had um, a friend whose whose mother was a director of a, a software um, a software house, a software development company. Um, and I, I had a chat with her, um, and they were keen to bring in some some graduates, um, and I, I took a job with them. And I think at that time they were they were they were needing to um, increase their kind of testing capability. They had lots of people coming in doing development work, um, but they they were needed to grow their their, their testing team. Um, I hadn't particularly selected testing as a as a discipline that I wanted to be involved in. Um, but it was it was a good place for me to to start my career, um, and and I really enjoyed it. Um, and you know, it, it just became something where I really felt that I could um, get a good and good all round understanding of the products that I tested and how they were used. Um, and and over time, I started to um, you know just really develop that interest in testing um, and the different ways that testing was performed. Um, and and of course, you know, working in different industries and for different companies, there were very different approaches to testing. Some very very large scale operations, um, some very procedural testing operations, some which were um, more exploratory. Um, and actually, you know, certainly in the early stages of my career. I think that there was there was less procedure um, and more exploration involved in testing, um, but it became it became a, a real passion of mine, and um, I guess associated with that, I I got to see the um, the quality of software that was actually delivered, um, and I got to see some of the decisions that went into whether quality um, was was fit to be shipped. Um, and, and that was a really interesting thing as well. Um, I don't necessarily believe that it's, it's um, a tester's role to make those decisions, but you certainly get an indication of how those decisions are made as a tester. Um, yeah, I know, I know this, uh, this next question has you know, many answers to it, but if maybe you could start with an example of you know, your first testing job. What does a tester of your category do? I mean, most people are probably familiar with the idea of, say, a video game tester who, you know, let's say it's a racing game, they tell you to floor it and pull to the right and just hit the edge of the track for an hour straight and see what happens. Yeah. Uh, you know, try to break, you know, things that you're interacting with game style. Uh, what would your, for example, like when you f were first getting started out when there weren't necessarily so many processes or things like that, how did you go about testing and what, what kinds of things were you testing? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the first company I worked for, um, it was actually a company called uh, Paradigm, and they, they created um, software for manufacturing organizations. Um, so it, it controlled some of the, um, the, the, the machinery in factories, and it also was involved in um, uh, logistics and delivery planning and, and that kind of side of things. Um, and and you, you used a very interesting phrase when you asked that question there about you know, seeing, seeing how things work. Um, and... Uh, I think that's that's sometimes something that is is lost in testing. Um, so you know, good testers do tend to approach things and, and look at things to from the point of view of learning about them and understanding how they work. Um, what has tended to happen with with testing um, is that it's become far more sort of rigid and 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 specification or requirement based. So confirming that requirements have been met rather than thinking about you know how how does this thing actually work. Um, so my, my philosophy, certainly in the early days, was very much around 
you know, getting an understanding of whatever it was I was testing um, and, and learning about it and, and, you know, providing information on it. Um, I think I probably lost that for part of my career because I, I, like, I think many tests will say the same thing. They, they, they kind of got pulled into this world of, um, you know, um, doing things on a very sort of regimented and procedural, procedural way. Um, so for me, I mean, testing is about providing information to people and doing that through through learning and exploring the whatever it is that you, you're testing. Um, circling back to what I uh, mentioned before about I had a question related to business um, and, you know, sort of IT. Um, one thing that I saw from your LinkedIn profile that I uh, when I was researching for this interview, I saw that you worked on the integration program for the Lloyd's TSB and HBOS merger uh, back <laughs> in the day. And um I'm uh, in a former life. I was an investment banker in London, um, uh, and I would I sort of left just before um, this infamous merger happened. I suppose I could say infamous. Um, a little bit of background for people listening: um, around the time the credit crunch was turning into the Great Recession, and you know investment banks were collapsing, um, the Bank of Scotland was ran into a bit of trouble. Um, and was acquired by Lloyd's TSB, this big bank, and it was very controversial at the time for a number of reasons. Um, but one of the reasons I bring it up is kind of selfish because, you know, having worked in M&A from the investment banking side, the details on the ground of what an acquisition or a merger looks like were something that I actually never really, you know, I, you know, I never sort of put on the hard hat, as it were. Um, and uh, this was a very important merger, um, and I think, you know, we often hear about things like, you know, Amazon just bought Whole Foods and stuff like that. But what, what was that like working on a team trying to bring together these two banks? I mean, where, you know, you know, people's life savings and, you know, the, econ the, the economy, the wider economy is at stake. What kind of work did you do and what was the temperature like? Um, yeah. Yeah, look, it was um, it was a unique um, program of work. I mean, it was um, it was absolutely enormous that program, um, and my involvement on it was 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 really tiny in the grand scheme of things because it was such a huge program and it affected so many people. Um, but it was um, it, it was a perfect example of how testing can become very very regimented. Um, there was a big organisation who were. Controlling um, the the testing activity that went on across that that whole organisation, um, and really it became a case of, of of a lot of reporting, a lot of um, providing metrics, a lot of um, really just sort of fulfilling a need for people to feel that testing was happening. Um, and uh, look, it was it was. Um, it, my involvement was with, with with a particular part of the of the Lloyd's Banking Group business. Uh, I was based in Bristol at the time, um, and we we had um, Lloyd's had a big big office there, um, and I was working as part of the um, the, the commercial banking group there, um, and and we had a very sort of focused. Um, uh, responsibility on particular systems that affected certain customers. So we didn't get a lot of visibility of everything that was happening within that program. Um, but there was just this sense that there were just hundreds, if not thousands of people involved in this. It was, it was absolutely huge. Um, I believe it was the, the, the biggest integration program that's, that's been run. I mean, certainly at the time, that's what people were saying. Whether that's still the case, I don't know. Um, but it's certainly affected you know, many millions of customers. 
and so there was a, a big focus on obviously making sure that um, those customers were were not adversely affected by what happened. Um, but there was also cultural things to bring into the mix. You know, when you when you're bringing two big organisations together, it's not just a matter of technology. It's it's all the people involved. There's inevitably going to be people's jobs are changing. People are going to lose jobs. Um, there was there was um, you know a lot of implications of of that program um, in in many many different ways. And um, as a contractor working there, you know, I was very mindful of. Um, all of those implications, not just the, the implications of the technology itself. And um, I'm curious, so you, you're, you're originally from the UK, uh, but now yeah. you're based in, in sunny Sydney, Australia. Um, yeah. How did you, uh, when and how did you uh, make, that, make that change? So I've been in uh, Sydney for about five years now, um, and um, it really came about. Um, I mean, I'd actually been for um, a short stint in Sydney um, about 14 years ago, and when I was here, I, I did some work for a company who were then called Access Testing, um, and I, I operated as a as a consultant for them for about six months. Um, now, when I finished my engagement with Lloyd's that we just talked about, um, I, I did sort of consider some some different paths at that stage. I'd, I'd been involved in financial services and banking for quite a long time, and I, I wanted to try some different things. Um, you mentioned games earlier. I, I even considered, you know, whether I could move into uh, games testing and whether that was something where my my experience could be valuable. Um, but another, another thing I really wanted to try my hand at was consulting. Um, so I'd, you know, I'd had a very brief experience, but I, I felt that with... Um, you know, the, the, the number of years I'd had in testing, I would like to try my hand at consulting in a bit more depth. So I contacted um, Access again. And um, through that, um, you know, we, we, we came to an arrangement and I, I moved the family over um, at the end of 2012. Um, and I was really excited to be not only, you know, starting a life in a new country, but starting a new chapter in my career. Um, and it turned out to be, you know, one of the best, probably the best career move I made. Um, you know, it was it was a great experience to work for a consulting organisation and uh, a company that you know are very very innovative and very willing to try new things. Um, but also to to work in a in a different country and to to experience um, you know a different market. Um, I, I often say to people here in Australia that I. I don't think they realise quite how uh, pioneering they can be. Um, you know, it's, it's a young country and it's um, a place where people are willing to try new things. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a cultural melting pot of Sydney. There's lots of different people from different countries coming together. Um, but, but just in a, in a business sense, people will try new things. They're not frightened to try new things. Um, and that, for me, was very, very refreshing. Um, and, it, you know, it's been a great experience. I, I, I don't work for Access anymore. I, I stayed with Access. They're now called um, Access HQ. Um, the HQ stands for Human Quality which gives you a little indication as to um, you know, how, the, how the, the book came about as well. Um, we, we talked about uh, quality from a human perspective a great deal at that company, and a lot of our services were, were tailored to, to, to trying to you know, provide quality for, for humans. Um, and so you know, it, was, it was a great experience for me. Um, I have moved on, but I've, I've, I've taken those lessons and that philosophy on with me in my career. Yeah, and I've got I've got a bunch of questions to ask you about that. Um, before before moving on, though, I wanted to ask you what was the I mean, spiders aside, what was the biggest adjustment um, <laughs> that you that you found you had to make moving to Australia? 
or to Sydney specifically, um, say it's a big country. Yeah, it is. I mean, the the, the you know culturally, it's it's not um, hugely dissimilar from the UK. You know, there's there's a lot of common ground, and from that perspective, it it wasn't um, that difficult to make the adjustment. I guess the biggest thing was just on a personal level. You know, my family had um, two young children. My son was actually only three months old when we moved across. Um, so uh, it was it was pretty challenging from that perspective, and you know, settling the family in um, and just setting up home and you know, adjusting to the to the to the way of life was was quite challenging. Um, interestingly, I suppose the you know fitting into the new job was probably one of the easier parts of it. Um, and you know, I, I certainly found that people were exceptionally friendly and helpful um, in all in all ways in Australia, and, and that really made it a lot easier. Um, I mean, I, I, I think it's um, it's a wonderful thing to do. I think if, if anybody has the opportunity to work in a different country, um, I think it's a great opportunity to take. I think you you learn a, a lot about yourself and you learn a lot about other people um, by, by operating in, in different countries. Yeah, speaking of actually both, you just reminded me, both Australia and moving to different countries. Um, I've interviewed a few testers um, for this podcast who've published books on LeanPub. Uh, Alan Richardson comes to mind, but also David Greenlee's um, who uh, oh, yeah. moved from Australia to uh, New York City, if I remember correctly. Um, and uh, actually, I did have a question related to that, not just the memory popping up. But, um, you know, uh, if there's something um, that sets you apart, or are, is there any particular kind of uh, preoccupation you have with respect to testing that, you know, would be sort of more unique to you, perhaps, than to other people? Is there any particular hobby horse you would like to you know that you talk about when you're talking with other testers about testing yeah i mean um look i mean i think um you, the, the people you've mentioned there would probably be um quite consistent with this but certainly the the more sort of the more context driven and the more uh, more exploratory methods of testing are something that i'm um certainly aligned with um i mean i i, I guess um, I, I would never say that there's anything that, that's kind of unique about my philosophy, but I, I do think, you know, going back to the start of our conversation, that that focus on the, you know, the human, the human impact of technology is something that perhaps gets lost sometimes um, and something that I really am a strong advocate of. Um, you know, I, have, I have a lot of interest in the, in the world of you know, usability and of customer experience um, and also human-centered design. Um, those, are, those are sort of subjects that I've become very interested in. And I see a lot of parallels with, with what we do as testers. And I see a, a, that we can, we can learn things from understanding those subjects. Um, I, I think if you, if you delved into conversations about testing over the last 10 years, you'd probably find that many of those conversations revolved around the subject of automation and revolved around the subject of testers developing their skills um, with coding and with automation. And look, I, I totally understand that, and it's something that I, I, uh, I support, and I, um, I believe that it's, it's important for people to develop those kind of skills. However, I also think it's equally important that we focus on the human aspects and we keep in mind that what we're doing is we're providing software and technology that is intended to benefit people. Um, and so I, I sort of emphasize this in, in uh, my discussions around testing. Um, and I mean, as we, you know, we'll, I guess when we want to the book, but one of the things that I've introduced in there is this, this uh, model of three dimensions of quality, and they're intended to be 
quality aspects that are considered from the point of view of a customer, from the person who's using the software. Um, most of the most of the discussions that we have around quality tend to be quite technical as well. Um, so I guess if, if I had to pick out one thing that maybe is you know slightly different in my philosophy, maybe that's it. Great. That's a great answer. Um, thank you very much for that. Um, actually, we have just one more question before uh, we move on to a book specifically. And that's, um, you know, a lot of people who work in, say, the startup or tech sector, um, like I do, you know, we work for, you know, we work on often, you know, the entire company can be a small team um, and without necessarily the resources to hire a dedicated tester or, you know, a, a consultant or something like that. And so you end up... Um, uh, I like to use the word cowboy when I'm referring to kind of randomly um, just attacking things. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I've, so I've done, you know, working for LeanPub, I've done a lot of testing as a non-technical person and certainly not trained as a tester. And I've always approached it like just to, to be as creative as I can, try to understand everything that can be broken and then try to break it in as many ways as I can. Um, but is there anything, if you were if you were to give advice, say, to someone who's, you know, let's say that, you know, young, just starting out in a startup and they need to test a product, how would you, what's, what's the sort of main advice you would give them for what to do? I mean, if that, that could be a book to read, it could be a couple of techniques. Yeah. Um, look, I mean, there's, there's certainly, um, some, some fantastic material out there. Um, I mean, one of the best things that, that um, people starting out in testing can do is to try and tap into the testing community that exists on Twitter um, and the, the, the testing bloggers that are out there. There's some, there really are some fantastic people who are um, willing to share their experience and their knowledge. Um, and I mean, this is a community that I probably only really tapped into over the last three or four years. But I've learned an incredible amount. Um, it's it's been a real revelation to me to to read people's stories and thoughts on things. Um, so you know, it, it's I mean that that word learning is crucial. Um, you know, testing and learning are absolutely linked. Um, not only the idea of, of of learning new things about how you test, you know, to to improve your career, but as you are testing, you are learning. Um, so I think it's it's crucial that testers have an interest in learning. Um, if, I had to, if I had to pick out some specific uh, recommendations for people, certainly I would say um, anything by uh, Gerald Weinberg, uh, but specifically the book Perfect Software and Other Illusions About Testing, which for me is um, you know, the, the single best book about testing, and it, and it really does um, you know, challenge a lot of the, the, the perceptions that exist about testing and offers some really practical um, advice as well. And, and there's, there's, a whole, there's a whole lot of other people I could recommend. I could, I could, I could <laughs> list off any number of names for you, but really if you tap into that, um, that testing community, uh, that's a great place to start. Um, I should probably actually mention the, the Ministry of Testing as well, who provide a, a huge number of resources and um, will introduce testers to, you know, lots of the key people that they should probably follow and pay attention to. Um, moving on to another resource that I would personally definitely recommend, uh, your book, um, Changing Times, um, which uh, I was mentioning to you before the interview, I really like um, in, in a number of ways. Um, uh, and um, before I go maybe myself into a little bit of detail about the book uh, and how it's structured, I was wondering if you could just explain a little bit about what, what the book is about and, and who it's meant for. Yeah, sure. Look, I, um, 
I mean, I, I recognise that really the the primary audience for this book is probably going to be people who work in in software development. Um, however, um, I, I really didn't want to limit the audience to that uh, to that group of people. I tried to write the book in a way that uh, made it accessible to, to anybody. So, anybody who has an interest in technology and how it affects our lives, um, I hope will get something from the book. Um, but for people who do work in software development, um, I hope it sort of promotes the, the thinking about the, the human aspect of technology. And I hope it maybe um, presents a, you know, a different perspective on some of, the, some of the trends and some of the things that are happening in software development now. So I'll cover, um, for example, you know, lean and agile development. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a passage in there about continuous deployment. Um, there's, there's, there's various elements about the, you know, some of the things that are going on in software development that I hope will um, maybe give people a different way of looking at things. Um, so I, I did want to, you know, target a, a wide group of people with the book, um, but I also wanted to maybe um, do something different in the way it's structured. And um, you know, as you said at the start, the, the you know many of the books I read and the books that I really love are, are very focused on the, the, the sort of methods and um, maybe sort of the theory uh, of, of what we do. Um, I wanted to kind of marry up a, a fictional and a non-fictional element to, to, it's almost like writing two books, I guess, um, and, and bringing them together to, to, to create something new. Yeah, one, that's one of the things I really enjoyed about the book. Um, in particular, the structure is um, you, uh, so you're sort of throughout the book, you're chapter by chapter telling the story of a kind of day in the life of a journalist. Um, from, you know, when she wakes up to, you know, later in her day. Um, and um, uh, so the chapter will describe this portion of this journalist's day, what they do, and the many different ways in which they interact with technology and in a way, you know, the way technology interacts with them. Um, and I have to say, I was, you know, right from the beginning, the lucidity and detail of of the descriptions of this person's activity struck me because I'd never seen anyone describe so accurately, like put a mirror up to my own existence in some ways, you know, like there's this great description of how she picks the first thing she does is she hears the tone of her phone because that's what she uses for her alarm. And then she opens it up and it inevitably she ends up sucked into social media or thinking about getting sucked into social media. And like, are there going to be people attacking me? And, and like the routine of having to block or report people, um, things like that. And the way you tie that into the fact that, you know, as a, as a, you know, female journalist, she might be subject to particular kinds of interactions on social media that not necessarily everybody else would. And it was just fascinating, not just the, this, because the structure of story about a person and then description of what their interaction with technology was like, was one thing, but like holding up this mirror to our lives in a way that I've never read. I've never, I mean, people talk about it all the time. People do write about it all the time, but where the focus is on the details of that interaction that we're doing all day long, um, I thought was really uh, brilliant. Um, one in, one uh, idea in particular that seemed to come up a few times that I wanted to ask you about was temperature changes. Um, so I think when, you know, from my description, people were probably thinking, oh, it's all about, you know, screens and stuff like that. Um, but one thing that you, you describe, you know, multiple times is the experience of going from, you're in an air condition, you wake up in an air conditioned space and then you walk out and you're in the heat and the impact that has on you, or you go from the heat into an air-conditioned space. Um, was, mm. that, was that deliberate that you, that you brought that up repetitively? Was there yeah. something you were trying to get out there? 
There, there wasn't anything, but you know, it, it wasn't kind of an allegory for anything. I mean, I guess the the point of that, um, and it was actually something you, you mentioned, uh, David Greenleaf earlier. I, I read um, an article David wrote a few years back um, about um, usability and. Um, the effect of people's moods um, as they enter into usability testing sessions. And I think this is a really important point that we, we, we often think about personas and we often think about emotional responses to technology, but we don't always think about how people are feeling as they enter into that relationship. So you know, as um, in, in the story, as Kim moves into these air-conditioned environments and out into the heat, it all plays a part in setting her mood and it plays a part in how she feels. And that in turn affects then her interactions with technology. You know, she feels more frustrated in situations where she's maybe a bit, a bit, you know, hot and flustered or she's, she's rushing for a bus or whatever it may be. Um, and, and we sometimes lose sight of that. You know, as humans, all, all of these things affect our lives and they therefore affect our perception of the, of the products that we use, of the technology that we use. Um, it's a very, very complex relationship. Um, and, yeah, look, I, I, I really wanted to try and get that, that, that fact across. And, you know, the, the words you use are very kind, the things you said, and um, about holding a mirror up to our lives. And I, that was something I really wanted to try and do. And I wanted people to feel um a bond with kim a kind of um you know that they could relate to her because it was similar to, to her life um and certainly you know some of the examples come from my own life and i know i'm not unique in uh you know picking up my phone as soon as i wake up in the morning and, and scrolling through social media um and i recognize that that's not a healthy thing to do so i kind of talk about that in in the book um uh, but you know it's important that we we recognize the social changes that are happening as a result of the technology that we use um it all plays a part in that in that you know that complex relationship we have uh, yeah speaking of mood and that concept relationship um you have a line, uh, this is probably going to be a long question, I'll try to keep it as short as I can, but um, you have a line which gets to the heart of one of my own product design hobby horses where you say, quote, a product which is regularly enhanced will inevitably lose some of its familiarity, end quote. And one thing that's true of every, I mean, I'm going to put enhancement in scare quotes, is that it's, it's a change. And yeah. whether the change is positive or negative, a change, the, the, the user in the first place relates to it as, oh, something's changed. Um, yeah. and they have to adapt to every change that ma that's made. So whether it's positive or not, the first experience is always, ah, it's different now. And one of the sort of just only semi tongue in cheek, like sort of jokes I have is, um, you often, you often end up when you're interacting with products, you can like, like digital products, software products, you can feel like you're in a real life adventure game, um, where you have to solve some arbitrary puzzle every time you try to do something in your environment, you know, like old games like King's Quest or something like that. It's like, how do you open the door? Well, solve this crazy arbitrary puzzle. Um, and uh, my, my non-technical brother uh, has an analogy with doorknobs and he says, you know, he, you know I say he's non-technical because he complains about how technical people sometimes enjoy the challenge and forget what it's like for just a normal yeah. person trying to use it as a piece of equipment. And he says, imagine every time you went back to your home, the way the doorknob worked had changed. Yeah, you'd start you'd start to be scared to try to open the door and you'd be apprehensive even approaching it, even if you knew it would be a simple puzzle. But it's like, really, like this is my house and I've got to figure out something new. And um, I, one of the things I enjoyed about your book was the dry humor. Um, and you have an example of this where you say, quote, the website was apparently created with a secondary purpose as a kind of psychological test. End quote. <laughs> 
Um, and I wanted to ask you, I mean, from the perspective of people who are creating products and, you know, designers and things like that, you know, they often feel that their job is to keep, keep putting out new designs, keep, because that's what they're there for, keep putting out new features, keep putting out new enhancements. And I was wondering if you have any advice to people like that, how they can avoid falling into that trap, because you often don't know, right? You don't know that people stop using your product because you made an improvement. Uh, or because you make improvements too often and now they just relate to it as this, 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 you know, thing that can't be depended on. And how can, how can yeah. people avoid that? Look, I think um, probably one of the most important things is just bearing in mind what you said at the start there, that, that um, it, familiarity with a product is, is important to some people. Um, you know, people don't necessarily want change. They, they, they may be comfortable with what they have. Um, and I think I, one of the things I talk about is how the very, the very nature of what a product is has changed. You know, we, we used to go and buy um, a, a car, and a car would have a list of features. And uh, you would know that when you entered into that arrangement, when you bought that car, you would, you would be buying it, and it would probably last you four or five years. It wouldn't substantially change. You may change elements of it. You may change the tires, but the car was still the car. You know, now with 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 what's happening with with motor vehicles, you you get updates. You know, you can you, you your product your product changes over time. You don't necessarily end up with the product that you you started out with. Now, for some people, that's exciting. For other people, they're not so comfortable with it. So, from a designer's point of view, and look, I'm I'm not a designer, and I would uh, I'd hesitate to offer too much advice to designers, but I'd certainly say, you know, consider your customers and consider um, the many different factors that go into their relationship with the product. Um, if they are familiar with something, if they are comfortable with something, they may not want it to change. Um, and, and I kind of realized that as, as I was writing about continuous deployment in the book, I was, I was kind of, you know, swimming against the tide a little bit. And maybe, you know, people who are advocates and evangelists for continuous deployment may not um, agree with what I was saying, but you know, the, the trend is very much for rapid, frequent delivery of change at the moment. And um, whilst I understand that, and I understand the competitive advantages, and I understand the you know the the benefits of being able to respond to customers quickly, those, those are those are well understood. But there's another side to this, which is maybe thinking about the impact on the customer, thinking about the the person who is actually using the product and um, what it means for them. Um, it doesn't always follow that frequent, rapid change is what a customer will want. And it's worth thinking about that depending on the context of the product and, and what, what your customers do with it. Yeah, I was going to say, especially depending on the context of the product. Um, for example, you know, you, we spoke earlier about you, know, you working on you know, banking uh, processes. Um, I believe you work for a large um, insurance company now. Um, and you were reminding me, I, just, I was just um, paying royalties to our authors um, uh, today we pay at the beginning of, of every month. Um, we've paid out millions of dollars to lean pub authors. And of course I use a payment service, which I won't name because I love them in many ways. Um, but, um, uh, they've started in their design. They've started doing things that might be totally appropriate in a, in a, in another type of company where continuous deployment and things like delight and things like that might be what's most important to people mm. keeping them using it. Um, but they, what they've started doing is these crazy spinners and light boxes and things to interact with. And uh, in particular, when you go to pay, they randomly show you a set of circle faces and account names. 
um, right. which is supposed to make you pl- pleased or something. But the thing is that like, from the perspective of someone making payments, I don't care what the circle face is. I certainly don't want to be showed anything random. Um, and, um, uh, I don't want to be shown an account name either because what I'm doing is I'm sending money to an email address. Um, you just want to make the payment. <laughs> and you just want to make the payment, but I guess it's like anybody can upload any image they want to their account and anybody can enter any name they want, like first name, last name into their account. That's, I, I cannot know who that is for sure. If I'm only seeing that information. Uh, now, if I'm on social media or something like that, if I'm on Facebook, well, you know, that's not, you know, if you if you make a mistake or someone messes with you a little bit, maybe it's not the biggest thing in the world. But if you are over time sending out millions of dollars in payments, you know, I guess what I'm what I'm trying to say is nobody who'd ever had the responsibility of doing that and nobody who ever feared sending $50 to the wrong person because then they don't have another $50 and grandma can't come visit for Christmas because she can't get a bus ticket now. Nobody who ever approached things from that perspective would ever have designed a payment system the way this one has been designed. And I was wondering um, uh, what you think people who say are sitting on top of a product can do to help their designers be more empathetic with respect to you know the, the needs of the specific needs of the product that they have rather than what the latest design fad or convention might be for impressing your fellow designers. Yeah, look, I mean, um, that, that is a, that's a, the example you gave is a great one. And, and um, yeah, one of my colleagues at um, the company where I now work, which is, as you say, a big insurance company, you know, I, I've heard them saying, you know, look, people don't want to be um, entertained when they're making, when they're, when they're signing up for insurance policy. They just want to, they just want to get it done. It's it's a different kind of product. It's it's you know depending on the context, um, having something which is enjoyable to use may be very important, but it's not always important. Sometimes it just has to be useful. It just has to be able to do the thing that it's intended to do. Um, and I mean, it, in in terms of understanding um, understanding what matters to the people who are going to use the product. The, the, the simplest thing is is to talk people to talk to people to spend time with them to try and understand the way they use it. Um, one of the great things that I've seen at this this place where I'm now working is that um, developers and and technical people will actually go and sit with colleagues who operate in uh, customer contact centers. They'll actually sit with them and see how they use the the um, the applications which they work on. They will they'll look at the practical things they do to get to work around some of the, the, the problems that occur. Um, and then you know developers can take that back and, and can adjust um, the way they work and um, it, it really makes a difference to that kind of relationship between the developer and, in this sense, the, the colleague or the customer who is who is using the product. Um, having that that sort of deep understanding of the way people actually use things is is crucial. Um, and, and it's not easy. I mean, people, you know, empathy is a word that uh, is used a lot in in product development. Um, and I, you know, obviously got a, a whole section of the book about empathy. It's something that. I think is absolutely crucial, um, but it's not—it's not easy. It's not—you can't just switch it on. You know, you—you you, you have to really um, spend time with people and understand the way people do things to, to develop that empathy for them. Um, and and only then can you kind of apply that thinking to, to the work that you do in, in developing technology. Um, yeah, uh, one of the um, uh, things you write about often, most about in your book, I suppose, is the stuff that we we know we're interacting with, 
Um, but you also write some of the technology which affects us is visible to us yet more is hidden from view. Um, and, and you talk about how this hidden technology is used to influence us. And this is sort of, you know, where things get like, you know, things about like empathy and things like that get really subtle. I mean, if you're, if let's say you're making a product or testing a product that the person might not even know is there in their life. Um, I guess I was wondering if you could talk a little bit of just, you know, about what sort of technology you're getting at when you talk about what's hidden from our day-to-day -day ordinary, like sort of literal view of things. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, specific now. I guess I was referring to the way that um, the data that, that we that we provide, uh, whether we know it or not, uh, the way that that data is used. Um, and I mean, there's an example I give in the book of um, of retargeting in advertising. Um, you know, when you you you, you go onto a a website and you buy a you buy a television and then for the next month you see adverts for televisions you know which which seems a little strange because you've already purchased a television so why why do you need another one um but it was it was really about um you know we, we're very aware of the te technology that is presented in front of us um the the devices that we use the websites that we use but there's a whole lot that you know sits behind that the, the data that underpins it um that that it's important that people are aware of, of that and they're, they're aware of the fact that they are um, providing companies with something when they use a product. Um, uh, I think when I describe uh, the, you know, the concept of a customer, I talk about um, even if a financial transaction hasn't taken place, you, you are a customer. If you use, uh, if you use Google or um, any of the other you know, major websites, you are a customer because you are giving them something. You're giving them data and you're giving them your time, you're giving them traffic. These are all things that are valuable to them. Um, they can make money from this. Um, so you are a customer. Um, and it's kind of important that people are, are mindful of that because technology is so intertwined with our lives now. Um, that, that, you know, that understanding the extent to which that, that, um, that occurs is, is probably an important thing to, to, for us all to understand. Yeah, I guess um, I guess it's maybe a slight digression, but we can maybe take a couple of minutes. Um, I'd like to ask you, uh, what is your opinion about that broadly? I mean, I know one one often hears, you know, maybe from you know the EU or something like that about how, you know, people potentially like organizations potentially or governmental organizations potentially creating regulation that means users whose data is being used um, in these ways you're describing should be compensated somehow. Um, just if we could take a couple minutes, what's your What's your opinion about that? Should should you know? Should it is it is it enough? Would it be enough if the companies simply were more explicit with you about what they're doing and what they're using it for? Do you think that there should in the future be some kind of compensation for the user? I mean, if 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 Google is watching everything I do and then selling that information on to advertisers, essentially, uh, should I get paid? Yeah, look, I think um, probably more than the. Um the financial aspect of it, I think it's more a question of control. And I think increasingly people will want to have some measure of control over what data um, is taken from them, what information is taken from them, and how it is used. Um, now, that's, that's not going to be an easy thing to overcome. People don't necessarily want to spend time reading through terms and conditions and, you know, familiarizing themselves themselves with how things are used um but i think that the, there's there's probably a a balance that needs to be addressed in terms of who owns that information um i as an individual would like to feel that i have control over how much information i provide and um, how companies use it um 
how we do that, I, I, I don't know. But I think that's probably the more important discussion um, than, than whether people should necessarily be you know, financially rewarded for that data. Some people may want to be. Some people may be very happy to um, pass over large amounts of information and they may want some financial uh, return for it. Um, other people may say you know, quite, quite the opposite view that they, they'd much rather keep control of that information themselves. Um, I do think it's um, a question that um, not just governments, but the, the, the big tech companies need to ask, um, you know, how, how do they, um, you know, manage that relationship with their customers in a, in a meaningful and fair way that, that allows customers to control things? Yeah, it's a really it's a really fascinating topic. I mean, it's it is really interesting. I mean, as you as you point out multiple times in your book, and this has you know sort of uh, deep meanings for uh, how one creates and and you know designs products. But everybody's different. Everybody's different, even individually over time, uh, as you say, as their mood change and as they ch- changes and as they change. Um, but one one interesting thing I've encountered around data is. Um, uh, just I'll say this briefly, but you know, LeanPub sells books, and we deal with authors all the time and readers. Um, and one of one of the debates is, you know, Amazon versus the indie bookstores. Um, and I won't go into specifics, but there is this collection of bookstore owners and advocates in a city in the United States who, you know, Amazon was going to be opening a, you know, a warehouse or something like that. And um, uh, they issued a press release where they said, you know, don't, you know, Amazon is just gathering all your information. It's just gathering all your information. You know, do you really want that? What you really need is us to personally know you and know everything about you and enough about you that we know better than you what you need to read next. Um, and, and they talked about, I mean, they talked about both an algorithm and meaning algorithm, a logarithm, which I thought was hilarious. But, um, you know, they said Amazon may have the logarithm or something like that, but we've got the personal touch. And it was just really, it's just really curious. You know, some, when people are dealing, there's a certain type of person who gets mad at, you know, what, what is it like? Uh, the French have some acronym for like Google, Amazon, uh, Facebook, um, yeah. Microsoft, and and um, uh, oh no, that's terrible. Uh, that that basically, I'm data about me exists on these computers out there and is being collected by computers. But the local guy actually knowing everything about me, oh, I'm totally fine. I'm totally fine with that. There's nothing sinister going on there. Um, and I, I guess I just bring up this example partly because it's funny, but partly because it goes to show that, you know, when you're creating technology and when you're interacting with people, you know, it's not just that they will differ from each other. It's that like they may even hold internally contradictory positions and that the challenges of addressing this when you're making a product that's meant for a wide consumption are, are vast and not necessarily reconcilable. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's a really important point. And um, I mean, I, I I guess I only kind of touched on it really around, around trade-offs um, and the fact that to, to make something more usable, you may need to compromise on security, for example. To make something um, more personalized, you may have to take more data from people. You, 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 there are trade-offs here and it, it is, you know, there's a responsibility on each of us as individuals as well to, to think about what we really want. Um, it's, 
it's not necessarily a case of just you know blaming the companies and and saying you know that they're they're taking things from us um we we have a kind of responsibility to ourselves as well um and and we have to be realistic about what the what the technology can and cannot do um there are trade-offs and there are trade-offs that the that that the companies have to manage and the trade-offs that we have to be mindful of as individuals as well uh, speaking of being mindful, that reminds me of a distinction you draw in your book between um, this concept of build quality in and what I think you advocate, uh, which is think quality in. And I, I'm guessing you're being a little bit provocative, perhaps, with that with that uh, you know distinction. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about about that. Yeah, I mean, I guess um, it was it was a little bit provocative. I mean, um, I, I hear the term build quality in a lot. Um, I mean, the, 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 there's a, a couple of problems that I have with that term. Um, the first is that, you know, it, it kind of implies that quality is a sort of ingredient. Um, it's a tangible thing that can be kind of stirred into the pot and, and, and mixed in. And suddenly, you know, if you add, add quality in at the right time, you're going to have a quality product. And we know it just doesn't work like that. Um, and it's, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a strange way to look at things. And the, the other thing is, is the word build. Um, you know, rightly or wrongly, I think people tend to associate that with with developers, with people writing the code, um, and it, it's almost like the, the 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 burden for quality. It's like a, an attempt to shift it from testing, which is obviously not the right place to to think about quality, to to people who are writing the code. And what what I'm saying is that. You know that's not enough. We 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 have to think about quality at every stage. Anybody who is involved in um, the the idea behind the product, um, the design of the product, the way it is built, um, the way it's implemented, the way it's supported, the way it's maintained, quality is something that that is a responsibility of all of us. And I know that when people first talked about build quality, and that's that's really the point they were trying to get across, is that it is everybody's responsibility, and I completely support that. I just think that the term itself, build quality, has, has maybe been um, slightly misinterpreted. Um, and, you know, it, I guess it's I, I'm just putting my own spin on it, saying that we you know, need to think about it um, at, at every stage. Yeah, one of the one of the great points uh, you made when talking about thinking about quality in your book was um, about the fact that people often have a ten, especially perhaps people of a certain type or at a certain type of organization, have a tendency to try to quantify quality. Um, you have this great pun, which may not be original to you, but I don't know th- know if I've come across it before, where people take refuge in numbers, uh, where you mean not like in groups of people, which is the way it's meant, but you know, in actual you know numbers. Um, uh, and, um, you have this great joke too. I think it's something like, um, imagine you're at a construction site and the, you know, uh, foreman says, you know, bring me some cement and by the way, bring me a bag of quality as well, please. Um, and, uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I mean, why, why can't you quantify quality? Yeah, I, um, I think th- this is a. I mean, this is a very, very big subject, and um, it's something that comes up for discussion a lot amongst uh, the testing community because um, quite often we will be asked to do exactly that as testers, um, and I will hold my hand up and say I've tried to do it. You know, I've, I've over the years I've produced uh, you know horrible graphs and charts and Excel spreadsheets with numbers in them that at the time I thought were good ways of measuring quality. Um, and I guess what I've come to realize is that 
you, know, you, you cannot put a simple numeric measure on, on quality. Um, and there isn't a single unit you can apply that, that will tell you whether quality um, exists in your product or in the relationship with your between the product and person. Because it is so subjective, there's a number of different things you, you need to think about. Um, and I, I'm not discounting metrics completely. I'm not saying that we should ignore them because I do think that there are there are patterns that, that metrics can sometimes um, display that give us a clue to where there might be problems. Um, but they, they, to me, they tend to be uh, more related to problems with, with the process rather than the, the quality of something. Um, so um, I, I hesitate to use the word defects. I don't really like the, the, the word a lot. But you know, when, 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 we, when we have um, large numbers of defects emerging um, during, during development, you know, it may be something to do with the way that people are being asked to work. It may be people being put under pressure. Um, it may be um, a sign that, that communication isn't working well and that there's misinterpretation of, of what the product is supposed to do. Um, it doesn't necessarily tell us anything about quality um, because what might be a defect to one person may not be to somebody else. Um, it is very subjective. Um, so I, I think it's important that the the kind of the emotional response to products is is um, we pay attention to that as much as we do to, to numbers about you know things like how many test cases have been run and how many defects have been raised. Those, those things don't necessarily um, tell us whether we you know have what we wanted or whether our customers will get what they wanted. Yeah, it's really it's it's as you say. That, thanks for that great answer. Um, it's it's as you say. It's a it's a really big topic and very broad um, in its in its what it touches on, but. You know, one of the things I've noticed is that often, you know, to kind of invert the normal charge that goes along with it, often people who demand the data and demand the numbers are actually being very lazy intellectually. And the reason they get away with it is because the numbers is usually associated with a kind of macho, hard-ass, objective approach to things. And then when someone comes along and says, no, it's actually subjective they'll represent that person as being insufficiently rigorous or something like that. But what you end up with then, because there's this top down and just kind of cultural kind of macho pressure to have numbers, you end up people with engaging in just nonsense, magical thinking, like the publishing industry will grow by 3.25% in the next five years, you know, <laughs> nonsense. That's just bullshit. Um, you know, yeah. you can't predict who's going to win, you know, uh, uh, you know, the Super Bowl next year, but you could tell me that an entire global industry is going to grow by like to two percentage points at the end of three years from now. Um, but, but somehow the introduction of numbers into certain types of practices brings with it this aura of an objectivity and a predictability that doesn't really exist, but people find comforting and especially people who might be say higher up than you who have to report to someone higher up to them. If they just yeah. go, Oh, well, it's all kind of, you know, getting a sense of things. <laughs> They'll be like, well, that's not a good basis for, I mean, even if that were true, that's not a good basis for discussion. Give me some numbers. Yeah. It's, it's, it's easy to um, distill numbers. It's easy for managers to, um, to, to extract what they want from numbers and to distill them into another message, which then goes to another layer of people and so on and so on. Um, and, you know, it, it, as you do that, you, you move further and further away from the reality. Um, you know, the, 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 best, um, the, the best kind of reporting on testing is when 
people talk about it when they have conversations about um, what they've what they've observed and um, you know what what this has told them about the product and um, what this may mean for for customers who are going to use the product and what could be done to address it. There's they're conversations, they're stories, but those kind of things are not easy to summarize and to pass up a reporting chain which is why people do you know there is safety in numbers because um it, it's something that everybody understands um it's it's black and white it's it's tangible um and and it's a very very hard conversation and i know a lot of testers struggle with this about you know when when you have that kind of macho environment where managers are um, pushing for numbers it's not easy to say no it's not easy to 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 push back and say look those numbers don't actually give you what you want to know let me talk to you about it um and it's and it's something of a a skill which um i guess testers probably need to develop over time um and they need to build up good relationships with the people who are asking for numbers um they need to understand why those people want those numbers and they then need to think about well what can i give them instead that will maybe give them something more meaningful um you know it's it's um it's possibly uh you know a slightly underrated and um, maybe not, not thought about um, enough as part of the, the testing role. You know, how, how, do we, how do we give information that is meaningful and useful to people? Um, you talk, and my last question about the subject of your book is that, and you mentioned this earlier, you talk about three dimensions that affect our perception of quality, that, you know, if you are talking perhaps in a non-quantitative way about, um, uh, you know, a product, you can reference um, whether it is uh, desirable or it's desirability, it's dependability, and it's durability. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about those three dimensions and what you sort of mean by each of them. So let's start with what, what's desirability. Yeah, so, um, I mean, I, I, I really talk about, um, you know, a product being desirable from the point of view of, you know, the, the, how that person feels when they're using it. I mean, this, this comes back to one of the... Um, one of the main things in the book is this, this subject of um, a relationship between um, a person and a product, which is um, something that um, yeah, I actually read um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance quite recently. And it's something that that, that, that relationship um, is discussed there. It's something that um, I, I put a quote in the book from Michael Bolton, which he talked about in a blog post. Um, and I guess those, those three dimensions play into that idea of a relationship. You know, we we know what is desirable to us um, in in a relationship with a person. Um, um, I don't necessarily use the word desirable to mean attractive. I mean, you know, that that's part of it. But it's it's really about what we want, what we what we what we need from from that relationship. Um, so there's there's a number of different factors that um, that are covered in there. I won't go into all the different quality aspects that are within each of the dimensions. Um, but I've tried to pull together um, a number of you know human focused words that relate to that to each of the dimensions um and and with desirable it's the factors which make uh, products something that we want to use something we want to own something we want to have um and then moving on to the others um so dependability is is really about uh, if something's dependable it's all about the trust that we have um between ourselves and the product. So, you know, the factors that make us trust something, um, something we can rely on. Um, it's, it, again, a number of different things that play into that, um, but it's a very important part of a relationship that we, that we have trust. 
And then finally, the, the last one is durable. And durable is about how, um, how enduring something is. I know that durable can also mean uh, sort of robustness, how tough uh, something is. And again, that could be part of it for, for you know, a particular product. It may need to be uh, robust. Um, but, it, but really, I'm using the word durable to, to describe how long-lasting a relationship is. And I give an example in the book of um, Kim has a digital voice recorder that she uses as a journalist. And it's something she's comfortable with. Um, you know, it, she doesn't feel the need to replace it, even though some of her colleagues kind of tease her about it. They've all got more modern devices than she has. She doesn't care because she's happy with what she's got, and therefore she has a long-lasting relationship um, with with that particular product. So, yeah, I mean, obviously there's a, there's a bit of a, a bit of a play going on with the fact that it's 3Ds and it's you know three dimensions. Um, but I think the um, you know that those three factors, which I'm not by any way saying that they they should be treated as a sort of standard, and if you have these three things, you have quality. I'm just encouraging people to think about those three dimensions as as different ways to consider quality from a human perspective. Um, speaking on the subject of products and quality, uh, your book itself is a product um, and one I would say of high quality. Um, and um, one thing I noticed was that you used LeanPub's bring your own book feature to publish it to our bookstore. Uh, this lets authors create their own ebook files with any tools they like rather than LeanPub's workflow and then upload them for sale on our store. And I was just wondering um, what tools you use to create your book for anyone uh, out there who's interested in self-publishing. Yeah, um, look, I mean, I I, um, I was very fortunate um, again with the with the publishing. My my sister actually runs a publishing house in the UK um, called Head and Publishing, and she does some proofreading and copywriting, uh, proofreading and um, editing services as well. Um, so. Um, I really drew on her, her knowledge, and she she's actually written three books herself, three novels. She um, she gave me some good pointers, you know, about about writing a book. Um, the process itself for me was um, <laughs> it was it was slightly strange. I mean, I I was I was just kind of snatching time to write when I could. Um, you know, working full time and having a young family, it's um, it's kind of difficult to find time to write. Um, so I actually was writing um, on my iPad a lot of the time. Um, I had uh, Microsoft Office on my iPad. I was writing um, on the bus going to work. Um, then in the evenings, um, when I had some time in the evenings, I would, I would write as well. Weekends were a good time to do some writing. Um, but I really had to just be able to kind of switch it on and off. Um, and so it was really important that I had a, a sort of map of, of what the structure of the book would be. So um, I used mind map um, to kind of, you know, build up the structure of, of how I wanted the, the, the book to work. Um, when, I'd, when I'd kind of got most of the words down, um, which, was, which was really many months before the book was published, um, it then went into the what I found with the most frustrating and difficult period, which was reviewing and reworking it. Um, I, I did find that incredibly, um, incredibly difficult. Um, I was very lucky to have some fantastic reviewers from the testing community who, who I'd come across on Twitter who um, gave me some fantastic feedback, and I was very, very grateful to them. Um, but you know, just the process of waiting for waiting for comments to come back and finding that sometimes the the comments contradicted each other, and sometimes I didn't agree with them. Um, I, I found it really difficult, and I found that I got sucked into this kind of 
world of, you know, I, I was sort of analyzing individual words in the book and, you know, was that exactly the word I meant and did I want to change the wording slightly? And, and you can get really bogged down in that. You could get to a point where, you know, you never release the book um, because you, you're, so, you're so intent on getting it perfect. And, and obviously, you know, it's never going to be perfect. You have to accept, you have to compromise, um, you have to, you know, um, you know, make little changes that perhaps you wouldn't, have done from the from the, from the first place, um, but that you know once that was done, um, I then passed it across to my sister who did the the sort of formal editing of the book and did a fantastic job on it for me. Um, I also had, um, I mean, you, you, you'll have seen the illustrations in the book. One of the one of the things I really love about the book is the illustrations, which were done by a lady called Catherine Clark. And Catherine, um, you know, I gave her an idea of what was happening in the in the chapters of the book, uh, and Catherine pulled together the illustrations. So there was, there was a lot of to and fro between myself and Catherine on what the um, what the illustration should look like. Um, how did you find your illustrator? Oh, so um, so Catherine's a um, a friend of my sister. So um, she's done a lot of the illustration and covers for for the, the books which which Head and Publishing produce. Um, um, and I was I was really delighted with the, those illustrations. They're absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, they, they they really kind of bring the characters to life. Um, and I really wanted that, you know, I had in mind um, a book I used to read when I was a kid was uh, Three Men in a Boat uh, by Jerome K. Jerome, which was written at the, you know, the, the, the early sort of, I think it was 1890s that book was written. But each of the chapters has a, a little illustra- black and white illustration at the start. And I wanted something similar. Um, and I think that Catherine did a great job in, in putting those together. Um, but uh, you know, as as the sort of the form of the book took shape, um, it, it, it did become um, quite quite a laborious process. And um, you know, you get to a stage as a writer where all you want to do is publish the book. You, you, you've done you've done what you feel is the hard bit, which is writing the words, and you just want to get the book out there. Um, so it can be quite painful, you know, waiting for those final steps to occur. Yeah, thanks um, thanks for explaining that that process and explaining it so well. Um, one thing. In a way, I'm kind of not surprised to hear that you went through uh, agony because, and I guess this is kudos to you and to um, your sister and all your pe- people who give you feedback, but I found one typo um, in oh. the book. Uh, and it was like, you know, it was, it was almost like as, as, as I turned page after page after page, I was like, how, did, how was this done? Because, you know, it's, it's hard. It's hard to write a book with and publish a book, no matter how many people are involved no matter how you know professional the copy editors are and how big name the publisher is to achieve what you guys have achieved is pretty pretty um remarkable in my experience so um i want to say that even though you may have gone through some agony i mean from a reader's perspective uh we're all grateful um that's that's again that's very kind and look um it's uh I, I, I kind of, you know, I feel like even though you're saying there's only one typo, like oh, now I've got that feeling of disappointment. Oh no, a typo is sort of. Um, you, you, it gives it gives a sense of um, it, it, it's interesting because of course the, the this part of the subject of the book is about product development, and it does give that that sense of of what it's like to release a product and wanting to get it right and wanting to um, provide something which in this case readers will enjoy. Um, it's it's really tough, and you know, there's the, the, you, ha- you do have to get the balance between um, perfection and and you know trying to perfect something and 
something that's good enough. You know, um, I don't like that term good enough. I, I, I like I like to try and get things um, exactly how I want them, but you can't always do it. Um, so, and it really does take a team of people to, to work on a book. It's, it's, it, everybody says this. I know every, every author says this in their, in their notes at the start, but, but it, it's not just, it's not just down to the author. There are so many people involved in producing a book. Um, and so many people that, you know, you, you feel grateful to and that you, you want to thank and you want to acknowledge for everything they've done and in helping you to, to think about the subject and, and to go through the process of, of writing the book. Yeah, definitely. Um, and you know, like it's one of the fun things about, you know, this job is, um, seeing the different approaches that so many authors take, um, you know, a sort of canonical lean pub author, um, everybody, everybody has to fight that battle, you know, when am I ready to release? And, you know, in, with lean pub, because books can be published in progress, you know, you get, yeah. you, you perhaps see a wider, people have a wider spectrum of choices that they can make than in sort of more conventional forms of publishing. But the one key factor that unites them all is, you know, a lot of, it takes a lot of people to make a really good book, uh, usually. Um, and, um, you know, so, and, and one of the great things about, um, getting a team together is that although you as the creator of it, and I very much sympathize with this, oh no, a typo, um, the person who found it though, they feel good because they help you out. And that can be someone you're paying as a copy editor. That can be, you know, so a colleague that's reading your book, or it can even be a customer who emails you or something like that and says, Hey, I found this on this page. You know, can you fix that? But you know, one of the universal experiences that or nearly universal things is, yeah, it takes, it takes a lot of people to really make something perfect in the end. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one question I always like to ask people at, at, as I wrap up, an interview um, is uh, if there's anything about Lean Pub that we could we could build for you that you can think of, what would that be? Or if there was anything we could fix for you, what would you like us to fix? Um, look, I was I was thinking about um, about Lean Pub before we started talking, and um, yeah, one of one of the subjects uh, that does that does come from the book is that um, a product is um, is much more than the the code and the, and the technology that 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 people use a big part of it is the support um around the technology um you know you can you can use a terrible product but if if the support that is around it can kind of retrieve the situation you come away with a kind of warm feeling um and one thing i must say about lean pub is the support has been fantastic i mean i i um i've actually been really really impressed and really blown away by um, how quickly you have responded to to questions that I've posed. So there's been a few things where I've emailed um, questions through, and you know you respond so quickly and so thoroughly, and um, you know with so much care. That is a, that's a fantastic um, a fantastic thing, and you know that 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 goes above and beyond the platform, which is excellent as well. So I've really uh, found the the whole sort of um, process of understanding sales and um, and, and how things work really, really simple on, on the platform. Um, and obviously, I didn't get to experience the process of actually writing the book through LeanPub. But the, the, as somebody who's, who's effectively published through it and is selling the book through LeanPub, it is a wonderful experience. Um, I, you know, I, 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 can't, um, I can't think of anything, you know, that, that I would say would be, would be kind of a, a major improvement on it. Um, it has been, it's been great. Oh, well, thanks. Thanks very much for all of that. I will cheerfully on behalf of 
the team uh, accept the compliment uh, and the feedback. Um, we really appreciate that. It's been uh, a lot of years of interacting with authors and readers uh, to get it to the point where people can say things like that about it. And so we really, we always really appreciate hearing that from authors. Um, well, thanks. Thanks very much, Rich, for taking the time on your Saturday morning to uh, talk to me. It's Friday evening where I am, Saturday morning where you are. Um, uh, I had a really great time. Uh, and I wanted to thank you very much for being on the Front Matter podcast and for being a Lean Pub author. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you.